20 of the series of, in Galatians, which is about Christian freedom. Um, and we've been looking for many months now, trying to explore different aspects of what it means to be saved and what the kind of freedom that Christ has brought for us. And this morning I want to have a look at uh, chapter uh, 4, verse 21 to 26, which is a well-known story. Uh, and it's part of Paul's argument. Remember, he's, he's, we've been looking for the last couple of weeks. Paul has been trying to encourage the Galatians and say to them, don't be intimidated by these legalists. Don't be intimidated by the Judaizers who are saying, you must become Jewish, you must add to your faith. He said, don't be intimidated by that. And he's trying to encourage them not to go back to that kind of legalistic, moralistic lifestyle. And so he's been doing, he's, he's, he's taken a couple of, uh, of arguments and he's unpacked them. And this really is another way that Paul is doing that. And he uses this example of Sarah and Hagar. And so we're going to look at that this morning from verse 21. It says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through a promise. Now this might be inter interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. And she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem from above is free, and she is our mother. Uh, this, is, this is beautiful portion. This is an amazing portion of Scripture. And so, um, just to set the scene again, remember last time I talked about... Um, Paul appealing to the church and saying, how is it that I've become your enemy? Uh, we, we had this relationship that was so warm and so, so open and joyful and you got saved and now I've become your enemy. And that was because these people had brought different doctrine into the church and because they had brought different doctrine into the church, now suddenly Paul had become the enemy where actually Paul was the one that was bringing freedom and they wanted to go back to legalism instead of enjoying the freedom that Paul had introduced them to. And I said to you, so often in churches, um, division comes in churches and, and um, unpleasant things happen in churches that are birthed out of different doctrine. And so I said to you, we hold to the gospel in this church. We hold to the freedom that Christ has for us. And so those are the things that we are fighting for. So I just said to you, be aware that sometimes conflict can happen in churches through different doctrines being introduced by different people and different emphases that try and take the church in all different directions. And that's where conflict happens. And we need to be sharp that one of the things that God has laid on our hearts is that we will be unified. One people. We want to be unified in the gospel of Jesus. That's what we want to be unified in. Yeah? And so other things that can become sources of division we need to become aware of. And then I, I said to you last, last time as well that Paul's highest motivation when he prays, remember he prays at the end and he says, I labor for you with all energy like a woman in childbirth. And Becky came to me afterwards and said um, she felt there was um, uh, an interesting illustration. Laboring all together uh, to see Christ formed in you. That's what Paul says. He says he's like a woman in childbirth until Christ is formed inside of the people that he's ministering to. And I said, that needs to be our highest goal as Christians. It's good to see people saved, wonderful, but let's not just make that the thing. The thing is, actually, why do we want to see people saved? So that can, Christ can be formed in them, and they can become more and more like Jesus. That is the highest 
to all of our hearts. And so now Paul uses this, um, he's still continuing his argument and saying to these guys, throw off this moralism, don't go back to it. And he uses this allegory, he uses this illustration taken from the life of Abraham involving Sarah and Hagar, Isaac and Ishmael. And I'm going to look at that in detail with you this morning. But I just want to introduce it by looking at verse 21. And Paul starts with a question. He says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? In other words, he's saying, You who want to be under the law, are you really aware of what the law says? The law that you're trying to live under. Are you really aware of what it says? And he's saying this to remind the Jews who were familiar with the five Old Testament books, the, the, uh, the books of the Pentateuch, Genesis to Deuteronomy, that was the law for them. He, what he's actually saying to them is, do you really know what the Scripture is saying? That's what he's saying. You who say you want to be under the law, do you really know what those five books teach? And so to illustrate his point, he, pu- he pushes them back again to a story out of Abraham's life. Right? And so he's really doing two things. He's saying, you don't really know what the law is saying. Remember, the scripture says, if we break one of the laws, we've broken all of the law. And Paul says this, he says this of himself, I kept every law except for the tenth. Do you know what the tenth commandment is? Do not covet. He said, when I I kept the law, I did not murder, I honored my father and mother, I did all that stuff. But then I came to realize that in my heart, I was coveting after other things. I was desiring things that other people had. The scripture says, if you break one law, you've broken them all. So Paul is saying, none of us can keep the law. You say you want to be under something, but you cannot even keep it. And then he says, secondly, he points the people back to a story of faith in the Bible. Faith is living without rules, without legislation. And he points them back to a story of faith. And he says, if you, want to, if you want to understand what I'm talking about, look again at Abraham and a story from Abraham's life, the one who walked by faith, who lived by faith. And let me show you again from the story of Rachel and, and Sarah and Hagar what it means to walk by faith. And so he's using this as a picture. And you know the story in Genesis 16. Um, that he's referring to. At Genesis 12, we looked at as well. Remember, the, uh, the promise comes to Abraham. God says, Abraham, you're going to have a seed. Through your seed, the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And uh, this pro- the problem is for Abraham that uh, lots of time goes by, and he's getting old, and he still hasn't got a son. And so he gets desperate. He thinks God's not going to fulfill his promise. And in his desperation, what does he do? At his wife's suggestion... <laughs> he takes a slave woman, he takes a junior wife in the home, and he says, I'm going to make a plan. He has his Frank Sinatra moment. I'm going to do it my way. And that's exactly what he does. He does it his way. He takes a slave woman, he sleeps with her, and he produces a child. Ishmael. But you see, God's heart was that his promise was not going to come through some kind of clever, fleshly, self-made plan, like Abraham did. And so God brings about his will supernaturally when they are both decrepit, when they are both old, when, when, they, when their bodies are saying to them, it is impossible for you to produce anything, you are shriveled, your seed is shriveled, you're old and decrepit, older than Helen and I, right? They're really old. 
It's like a Helen and I having a child in when we're nearly 100. That's what happens. God produces a supernatural son for Abraham in a miraculous way in his life. Why? Because he's saying, I'm going to do this my way. You think you're going to do it your way? No, I'm doing it a miraculous way. I'm doing it in a way that you haven't even thought of and you're going to have a supernatural seed in your life that comes miraculously because I will it. It's amazing. That's the gospel. And that's exactly what happens. But then we have this amazing thing that in the home, in Abraham's home, he now has two sons. One, the product of his own flesh, his own will, his own way of doing things. And he has another son in his home, living in the same home, that is the product of the supernatural, miraculous power of God. And what happens? They start to fight with each other. The older son, through Hagar, starts to persecute the younger son. I felt God say this to me. Legalism always persecutes freedom. The older son, the legalist, always persecutes freedom. Always. That's how it is. We're going to look at that a little bit this morning. So, I want to give you three ways. You know, Paul, Paul says we must not interpret this um, uh, too historically in the sense that this is what he means. Um, it's a picture for us. It's an illustration for us that we can learn from about how, what the gospel is and how the gospel works. So I'm going to give you three ways this morning of how the story of Isaac and Sarah and Hagar is an illustration for us that we can learn how the gospel works in our lives. And this is the first thing I want to say. Firstly, it's an illustration of grace and works. Some people are disturbed by the fact that Hagar, who really is an innocent party in this, I mean, she, didn't, she was a slave. She didn't choose this for herself. It was imposed upon her. That she, she represents something negative. And Sarah, who was actually the one who was the collaborator, who actually um, birthed the plan, as seen as something positive. It's kind of like hard to get your head around in some ways, isn't it? But remember, Paul is saying... He's not so much interested in the historical story. What he's interested in is what this can teach us about the gospel of freedom and legalism. And he's using it as an illustration. And so that's what he, he um, majors on. And for him, primarily, it's a good an an analogy to show us, to help us to understand, again, that we do not achieve a righteousness in our lives through our own clever ideas, through our own abilities, through our, our own efforts. That's what he's trying to say. Rather, we receive a gift of righteousness that God gives to us that is perfect through God's supernatural work in our lives. Like a supernatural birth for Sarah. Like Jesus living a perfect life and dying and rising from the dead. A supernatural, supernatural things. That's how God produces life in us. Through His miraculous power, not through our own efforts. And so Paul is using this to remind us that just like Abraham needed to learn to rely on God's provision and not on his own self-effort, not his own work, and he had to switch his faith from, away from his own efforts towards embracing God's supernatural work in his life, the Galatians also, who were being intimidated, intimidated by these legalists, also had to remind themselves to take their eyes off their own effort and put their eyes back onto Jesus to His cross, to His grace. 
And we have to do that all the time in our lives. We have to take the eyes off ourselves, what we can do, our own effort, our own gifts, our own abilities, and put them back always. The focus is on Jesus and what He can do and His power, which is at work in us. Yeah? And so, that's the first way that this is an illustration for us. It's an illustration for us that the gospel of grace always is better, much higher, God's plan for us, rather than works-based salvation. All right? Secondly, it's a picture of how the gospel of grace brings life to what is barren. I love this about the gospel. The gospel brings life to what is barren. Uh, and this is not only a theme that is, we can see in the story of Sarah and Hagar. It's a theme that goes throughout the whole of the Old Testament scripture. Verse 27 that Paul quotes here is actually looking back to Isaiah. Isaiah 54. You know it well. Verse 1. It says this, More are the children of the desolate woman than of she who has a husband. It's a great Old Testament theme in the prophet Isaiah. Remember? This prophetic word that Isaiah brings to the Jews is when they are in Babylon, when they are in exile. It happens 1,200 years after Abraham. It happens 600 years before Paul. That's the context, the time context. And Isaiah prophesies. And the Israelites are in exile in Babylon, and they are feeling that they are never going to have a future. Their nation is gone as they've known it. They're feeling we're never going to have a home again. We are desolate. They feel like failures. They feel like they are weak, they are helpless, they are in exile, they've got no power to do anything, and that's a punishment for them. And into that context, God uses this man, Isaiah, to prophesy to them and say, no, more are the children of you who are desolate than than she who has many husbands. He uses it as a picture and says, actually, God is going to bring incredible fruitfulness out of your life, even though right now you feel like you're in a barren, desolate, unhappy, lonely place. That's what the gospel does for all of us. All of us. And so what God is really saying through Isaiah to the people, the Israelites, he's saying, you who feel weak, you who feel helpless, know that my grace will work in your life. So if you don't feel strong, if you don't feel cool, if you don't feel hip, it doesn't matter. Because those that are cool and strong and hip, they are relying on those things to achieve for them. But Jesus says, when you feel weak, uncool, unhip, in that sense of desolation in your life, my grace works, and I'm going to produce incredible fruit through your life as you open your heart to my grace and my goodness. And so, God really promises uh, through this prophecy of Isaiah, this Genesis 16 story, the story of two women. It's an amazing thing because one is young, one is beautiful, one is fertile, the other is old. I'm not saying she was ugly, I don't know, but she was certainly barren. And God incredibly says, no, no, I choose to bring fruit, not through through the young, fertile, sexy one, I choose to bring fruit through the old, barren one who no one has thought about. That's the way of grace. That's God's kingdom. That's how it works. I find that incredibly encouraging. And really, Isaiah is pointing us forward to another virgin. He's pointing us forward to another son that is to come 
through an unlikely woman who's not unlikely to produce because she is barren. She's unlikely to produce because she's not married. And God says, I'm going to do another miraculous thing. In the life of this lady, Mary, I'm going to bring the seed that's going to bless the whole world and it's going to be a miracle. It's incredible. (laughs) Doesn't it astound you? And so Paul takes this Isaiah story and he, um, he gives it a fuller, broader application because, remember, the Galatians were being intimidated. The Galatians were being bullied by these false teachers. And so often in our lives, we have to learn to stand against false teaching. There's so much of it around. And it bullies you. It intimidates you. It, it puts stuff in your mind saying, oh, you don't really understand. You're not really a true Christian. No, no. It's learn to stand against what is false. Boldly, with courage, knowing that you've heard God for your life, knowing that you know what the gospel is about. We are saved by grace through faith, plus nothing. <laughs> That's the gospel. I want to encourage you in that. And, what, and, and so, so basically, these people are being intimidated, the Galatians, because they're saying, no, you need to add a whole lot of things. It's not good enough that you just believe by faith. You need to add to that. But now Paul, he uses this amazing picture to comfort the Galatians. Because what he's saying, as he's quoting Isaiah, is this. He's saying, you might feel Galatians like the barren woman. You might feel that um, you're not fertile and strong. That you can't produce anything through your life. That you don't really fully understand. But what Paul is actually saying is, if if, if, if it's true that we are saved by works, then only the fertile, only the strong, only the wise, only the ones that come from good families, only the good religious types can bear fruits. That's what he's saying. And then he's also saying, but if the gospel is true, if the gospel is true, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who you were. It doesn't matter if you feel desolate, broken, helpless. The gospel will work with power inside of you and will bring fruit out of your life. Even if you feel barren, even if you feel like your case is lost and hopeless, the gospel of God's grace will transform you from the inside and bring life to you. Oh man, it's incredible. I love what Keller says, Tim Keller says. Uh, I tweeted this week. The gospel is not just for fertile Hagar's but for barren Sarah's. If Sarah can have a future, anybody can. Come on now. Unless you feel super cool, unless you feel like you're one of the chosen ones, this is good news for everyone who doesn't feel cool. Everyone feels like they don't quite fit in. I feel, I've felt like that for years in my life. I don't quite fit here on earth. There are things that I value that the earth doesn't value. Why? Because this is not my home. Heaven is my home. I, I want to be with Jesus. I don't care too much for this world anymore. I'm not just saying that. I really don't. The world is screwed up. The world is desperately broken. And we need to live in that world and help to transform it by the power of the Holy Spirit. But this is not our home. You should feel a little bit restless. Why? Because we want to be with our Father. For those of you that are visiting, I'll just get a little bit louder, right? So, Paul goes even further. He says this, The gospel of grace is especially good news for the barren. It's especially good news for the depressed. It's especially good news for the lonely. It's especially good news for the poor. That's what he's trying to say. And really, when you see what Paul is saying, remember what Jesus said in the story of the older brother 
and the lost son. I like to call it the older brother and the lost son. Because they were both lost, weren't they? The older brother was all religious. He was all, oh God, I've my, he says to his father, Dad, I've served you well for all these years and you never even threw a, a party for me. You didn't even kill a goat. And now this retrograde brother comes back and you throw a huge party for him. And the, the older brother is much, he's as lost as his younger brother. Isn't he? Because he's putting all of his confidence in the fact that he's done the right thing all of his life. And that's what pleases his father. And it doesn't please his father. His father just wants his heart. His father wants him. And the younger brother is equally as lost as the older brother. Because he's just gone through his life saying, I don't need anything that my father can give me. They're both lost just in different ways. Religious people are just as lost as licentious people. We both need the gospel. Religious people need the gospel just as much as licentious people need the gospel. And so thirdly, the story shows us that the gospel is for really for disappointed failures. <laughs> How many of you have disappointments in your life? Well, the gospel's for you. Gospel's for me. You see, why do I say that? Well, in ancient times, what did a, a woman get her dignity from? The fact that she could bear many children. That's what gave her dignity in the society. The fact that she could reproduce and give an heir. And still, there's some, you know, the Bible never condones that, that worldview. In fact, I believe this passage we're looking at this morning undermines that view, which is a terrible mistake that so often societies still embrace. How many, how many um, th- th- um, examples can't you think of, of ladies that feel, just because they haven't been able to bear children, they feel stigmatized, they feel alien, they feel like judged, they feel like they quite haven't, there's an unspoken thing that they, they, they failed in some way. Our society is still full of those kind of things. And what, what this story is trying to show us is that we shouldn't make our children or our life worth anything more than our career or money or power or sense of approval or anything of those other examples. What the gospel really says to the people that have lots is that ultimately they're going to find those things are false strategies for self-worth and ultimately those things will collapse. And the gospel is saying that the barren, the poor, the broken, the marginalized can be fruitful and rich in ways that the powerful have not even dreamed about and they can bear great fruit in their lives as they live out the gospel and serve others. That's what Paul is saying. And that's why I said to you, all people need the gospel. The religious and the most irreligious both need the gospel. You see, I say that because... um, uh, this is a little demonstration for us, and I'm not trying to rub salt in wounds. Uh, but, uh, you know, everybody gets their sense, their, their sense of worth from something. So if you're a, re- a religious person and you say, well, I don't need God, you will worship something else. And so what do people worship? Money, sex, power, sporting achievements. Oh, worship sporting achievements. And then devastation comes. Devastation. Absolute Devastation. My sense of value, who I am, it's gone. It's true, isn't it? I've seen it in football supporters. Their team loses. They come to church on a Sunday like God is not king anymore. 
my team lost. Or rugby supporters. My team lost. Now my sense of self-worth, who I am, gone. Come on, guys. <laughs> our sense of self-worth is not in sporting achievement. It's not in our careers. It's not in our money that we have, whether we're wealthy or not wealthy. What, is our, what, what does the gospel say our sense of, wealth, our sense of self-worth is in? That you have been bought with a great price. That Jesus loves you completely, perfectly, just as you are right now. It doesn't matter if you don't achieve another thing in your whole life. I hope you will. I really do. But it, that's not what your worth is dependent on. God loves you perfectly right now. Take your worth, sense of self-worth from that. And whether your team wins or loses, you can walk in and enjoy the sushi. <laughs> or the burubos. Or the whatever. Because you're free. And you're not connected so deeply to that thing. You get what I'm saying? Okay. It's also Norwich, eh? <laughs> so, what I'm trying to say is these things can control us. They can, as we seek them, they can disappoint us. And ultimately, they can devastate us if we lose them. And so, let's not become Ishmaels that put our trust in the wrong things. Um, and so, the, these are three ways that the story is an illustration for us. Lastly, I just want to close with some personal application you know, for all of us as believers, God promises some amazing things, yeah? He promises us that all of us are going to have the full benefits of salvation. We're going to have the full blessings of salvation. And that includes the power within us by the Holy Spirit to live a godly life. That's what God promises every believer. It's an amazing thing. Secondly, like Abraham, who's been our case study for many, many months now, we, are, we will inherit those things in our lives by persisting in faith. And that's, that's what, I, that's what uh, Paul is trying to say over and over again. Don't ever get into a place where you start to rely on your own self-effort, your own obeying the rules. No, always point yourself towards walking by faith, by walking by the Holy Spirit, hearing God for your life, hearing the voice of your Spirit. That's how we walk, and that's how we move into our inheritance. And the third thing is, like Abraham, all of us face the temptation daily to stop trusting in God and to actually trust in our own cleverness, in our own sense of, I know what is right. Just like Abraham did. And so Paul says when we do that, we are actually making a very fundamental and a deep mistake. We are going back to the flesh, that's what he says. We are going back to Frank Sinatra instead of putting our, our full expectation in the living Christ and walking by the Spirit. Yeah? And so he's saying... Let's not go back to our own clever plan of how we want to live our lives, but always point ourselves and our friends and everyone else to the power of the Holy Spirit to lead us. And so that's why Paul says, these two women, and I'm finishing with this, these two women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for, for slavery. She is Hagar, and Hagar is Mount Sinai and Rebbe. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. And she's enslaved with all of her children. But the Jewish Jerusalem that is from above is free, and she's our mother. He has a very simple way we can apply that to our own lives. Paul's point is that Hagar represents legalism, represents self-effort, repre represents trying to live 
in a way that points always to a moral code rather than the freedom that Christ offers us. And he says, Abraham turns to the slave woman because he's desperate, because he's trying to make a plan for his own life. I was reflecting this week how often in my life I've made poor choices out of desperation. We often make poor choices out of desperation rather than waiting patiently for God and really, really trusting Him. At the last moment, we stop trusting Him and we say, I'm going to make a plan. It's, it's, it's taking too long. I'm not sure God really, really is going to do it for me. And so we make a plan and in the end, it's the wrong choice. And so in our own homes, we can have situations that are fruit of our own flesh, our own self-exaltation, if you like, and we can have things that are in our homes that are the result of God's promise, and they live there simultaneously. Are you with me? Let's not make poor choices out of not being patient with the timing of God. Let's wait wait patiently for Him. And so, that's why Paul is talking to these Galatians and saying, don't, don't go back to the old covenant. Don't get impatient. You want to be a holy people? That's a good thing. You want, to, you want to be set apart for God? That is a good thing. Paul is applauding that. But don't go back to the flesh to try and achieve that. Be patient. Be patient. Let God do it on the inside of you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't work yourself up. Don't try and be holy. No, holiness comes as we, as, as we submit ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit and God transforms us from the inside out. Yes? I know I've said these things often, but um, I'm going to say them again. And so the point is, as Paul is saying, if we as Christians ever turn away from walking by the Spirit to our own human efforts, we are making a fundamental mistake and it will do us no good. None whatsoever. And uh, that's what Paul has been saying to these Galatians. Turning to Hagar for Abraham did nothing good for him. Turning to the law for the Galatians did nothing good for them. For us, turning to self-effort and trying to do the right thing does nothing good for us. That's what Paul is saying over and over. So Hagar represents legalism, but here's the good news. Sarah (laughs) represents God's grace, God's kindness, God's mercy, God's supernatural provision in our lives. And so Paul makes this um, very clear, and he says Sarah represents God sending grace to us from heaven itself, and he says, the Jerusalem above is free. So in other words, the the Judaizers were coming into the church saying, actually, the power to live a Christian life comes from obeying the rules that come from, from Jerusalem. And if you obey the rules that come from Jerusalem, you will have power to live the Christian life. There are many that still think like that today, looking to external rules to give them power. Paul says, no. I say to you, no, the power of the Christian life comes to us, not from any rules, comes to us directly from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, transforming us. Yes, amen, you should say amen to that. That's how you live a Christian life, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Putting all your effort into this simple thing. Jesus, what are you saying to me today? What do I need to do today? Who do I need to bless today? Who can I help today? How can I better parent my children today? How can I better love my wife today? Lord Jesus, help me by the power of your Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that's how we walk as Christians. And I love books. I read a lot. But so often, the first place people go to is a self-help book, isn't it? 
Five steps to a better marriage. Ten ways to be successful at, at your work. Paul Robbins, or whatever his name is. And I, I think some of those guys have got some good things to say. But surely, as Christians, the first place we should go to is the source. Jesus. Jesus, what are you saying to me today for my life? How can I love Helen? How can I love my boys? How can I bless this church? Help me to hear you by the power of your Holy Spirit. That's how I want to walk. That's how I want to live. And it's the same for you. Come on now. We walk by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I want to encourage you. Paul says, the only way we've come to salvation is by the fact that we are born from heaven. We are born from above. Heaven is our home. That's where we're going. And the ongoing supply of power to live in a way that pleases God comes to us directly from heaven and He showers it upon us daily as we ask for it. And so we don't live by the flesh. We don't live by our self-effort. We live on the strength of Jesus that is sent to us from heaven itself. So my appeal to you at the end of this little message is that you would throw off every last remnant, every last vestige of trying to do things your own way, as I pray that prayer for myself, that I'd stop trying to do things my own way, or trying to please God through my own efforts, and I'm asking you, I'm appealing to you, will you focus all your energy with us in this church together, all our, all our attention and energy, can we focus that on learning to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit in our lives? That's my very basic appeal as a church community. Can we learn to throw off every other distraction and just to focus on what Jesus is saying for our lives that we can serve Him better and love each other more fully? Amen? It really is that simple. Let that be our desire. Let that be our ambition. That we'd learn to know what it means to follow the Holy Spirit and to really walk by the Spirit in every area of our lives. Amen?